Podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, the shelf life of statistics and what we still know when things change. That plus the real effect of not having any practice and our big New Hampshire preview as the Cup guys go north. But first, as always, this is episode 72 of Positive Regression. This is the Benny Parsons edition. David, great pick. Uh, a good one for Benny Parsons, Hall of Fame driver, Hall of Fame broadcaster, all-around good guy, right? A, a true old-schooler, originally from Wilkes County, North Carolina. doesn't get much more old-school than that when it comes to NASCAR racing. Uh, what we know is stats, you know, cup champion, the 21 wins, but take us further. What should we know about Benny Parsons? Yeah, his championship season came in 1971 behind the wheel of a Mercury. Sort of a nondescript championship year for Benny Parsons. He won just once the entire season and averaged a 10.1 place finish. You could say that he won a championship a little bit ahead of schedule because his career really took off around age 34. Uh, he would go on to eclipse that average finish mark each season between 1976 and 1978. And 17 of his 21 career victories took place between the ages of 34 and 39. So the prototypical driver, I would say, at least statistically, his best track, he was short tracker for sure. Nashville Fairgrounds, he won three times for two different owners, LG DeWitt and Bud Moore. And after his first start there in 1970, he never qualified worse than ninth in the 21 remaining races. Alan, I, I thought a lot about Benny Parsons. And I, I don't know what he was to you. Maybe it was a broadcaster first, a driver second. But when I think of over the years, when there were discussions about which drivers were going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame that year, uh, it would be a Michigan-based driver and Brad Keselowski uh, stand up on social media and trumpet the merits of Benny Parsons and what he meant to the Michigan racing community. Because uh, after high school, Benny moved to the Detroit area and he would drive a taxi cab and that's where he discovered racing. And he, from there, won two ARCA series championships. And he still has that impact on the Michigan racing community. We forget about that, kind of what drivers mean locally, but for certain, Brad Keselowski didn't. And uh, I'll always just remember him trumpeting Benny's merits in that regard. So certainly. And, um, they, they always talk about the contribution after you get uh, done driving. And that, that's mostly how I, you know, in my lifetime, look, I'm 30, what, seven years old. I mean, Benny Parsons stopped driving in 1988. So a majority of my memories are obviously going to be him as a broadcaster, especially when NBC and Fox, right, came back and he was a part of that NBC team that got a lot of accolades. I think Benny Parsons won an Emmy. I, I believe if that might be true, or at least nominated for one for his, uh, sports analysis. Uh, and so th that's how I know him of his post driving contributions. And then you can just look up and just hear what his stats are and what he means to the community. I'm fortunate enough, obviously, to work with his brother, Phil Parsons on Fox with the, with the truck broadcasts. 
And uh, the legend goes a little deeper, right, David? Uh, if you like Days of Thunder, he is associated with two of those stories, right? The hit the pace car story that was allegedly between him and Harry Hyde. And also the, uh, the ice cream story, uh, again, between him and I believe Harry Hyde. Uh, so the, the legend and uh, the stats and the contribution, it all it all goes together when talking the Benny Parsons story. Certainly Benny, the character took on a life of its own. And it was that that informed the analysis. I think when I recall uh, a Benny, I usually just remember when he had one-on-one conversations with different drivers. That was a segment that he did, I think, for every race. And he would be able to coax good answers out of them. And I think if you're an interviewer, if you're able to elicit good answers and responses, then you're doing your job pretty well. And Benny Parsons certainly did his second job in racing very well. Yeah, good stuff. Good choice. Number 72. He raced that 72, David, from about 1970 to 1978. A lot of starts in that beautiful 72 car. So episode 72 of Positive Regression, the Benny Parsons edition. All right, let's get this week started. And David, we're going to start with uh, being prompted by a question we got on Twitter. And it's a good one, one that I've often uh, thought of. But on Twitter, Jim Kaufman put it eloquently. He wrote, When using data in NASCAR with the rules package that started in 2019, is any data before that basically thrown out the window because of the lack of horsepower and increased importance of clean air? Obviously, clean air has always been significant, but seems so much more now. David, uh, I, I look at this question as two ways. I've always thought of it when it comes to your analysis. First of all, how you, you know, judge a driver and, and what they can do in terms of a different rules package. But I guess the other way to look at it is obviously with teams. Like, can you, you know, going back each year with a different rules package, how much can you look in that history book? Uh, so David, maybe we could answer it both ways. But what, what is your initial response to Jim's question about when you change the rules, how much of your data, historical data still remains, uh, useful? Yeah, this is a great question. It it really is. I wrote an article in late 2018 that was a critique of NASCAR's decision to reduce horsepower, uh, in essence, go to this current rules package. And that critique drew some eyeballs and a lot of comments, some supportive, some terrible. And <laughs> I... Didn't respond to any of them, but there was one comment that stood out, uh, and I remember it. It said, you're just ticked off because all your work is pointless now. <laughs> and I I did not respond to that, uh, but I, I did laugh because, bro, this is NASCAR. My work becomes pointless all the time. Think about track repaves. Car changes, all the the different generations of car, the addition of stages was new. That has completely changed the way that I evaluate strategy. Uh, PJ1, to some extent, I have to go back to the drawing board every year. I'm used to it at this point. And you know what? It's actually helpful because all things evolve, but all sports evolve from a product standpoint. And if you are providing analysis, you should evolve along with it. Uh, Alan, I know that you are a NBA fan. You are a, uh, what a former NBA season ticket holder. Correct. Correct. Uh, professional basketball has evolved since the days of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird's heyday, right? Thanks to 
rule changes, stylistic changes. Uh, the three point shot matters a lot because that's what analytics says. Uh, the influence of the European player development pattern, all those things. So it is a little annoying when analysts from the Magic Johnson era, and sometimes it's Magic Johnson himself, <laughs> analyze the modern game as if those in the game aren't doing right by what was relevant in 1987 or whenever they played. That is a trap. And that is bad, irrelevant analysis. And I don't want to fall into that trap. So my approach to all NASCAR stats is to take every season as a clean slate. And then if there is a connection to prior years, then I can make that connection. And we have something to talk about on positive regression to, to be able to inform analysis. So some things do hold up uh, for the most part, the drivers who produce well do so from year to year, from car to car, from rule package to rule package. I mean, think about it. It's it's kind of the same names that have been in the mix for things like race wins and championships. That It takes a lot for that to change. Crew chiefs who strategized well in 2018 were free to do the same things last year when the rules were different, and they're free to do the same things this year. There is nothing impeding that. And at the end of every episode here on Positive Regression, we talk about the restart dynamic. And damn it, if we haven't nailed it every week, <laughs> seemingly, because those disparities are relatively consistent regardless of whatever happens with the car or the rules or even the application of PJ1. I don't think that that's affected Bristol one iota when it comes to restarts. Uh, I do wish that there was more continuity between years, but not for selfish reasons. I'm not really in the prediction business and I'm quite happy with that choice, but I do appreciate seeing a driver's progression and a good example of this is in the Xfinity series, Tyler Reddick comes to mind. His first partial season in the Xfinity series, he did a few things well and was still figuring out most things. And the next season, he did most things well and was figuring out a few things. And he ended up winning a championship. And then the season after that, he just did everything well, won another championship. And at that point for him... There really wasn't much he needed to learn from the Xfinity series or that he was, that there wasn't anything new the Xfinity series was going to teach him. And with consistent cars and rules and tracks, we're able to cleanly piece together his evolution of, uh, as a driver. And I think that's pretty cool. And we can't do that cleanly from season to season in the Cup series, but that's where the nuance comes in within the analysis is we're able to sort of identify what is relevant and what is not. Are there certain staples, though? I mean, because b- before uh, your writing career, or maybe mixed in with it, but you were a talent evaluator, right? I mean, you were a talent scout. So I, I think of these, you know, year-to-year rule changes, if you will. Uh, I don't know if it's a fair comparison, but, you know, following a driver from, say, say K&N to Trucks to Xfinity to Cup, 
uh, if you were a talent scout, aren't there some things that are inherent about a, a driver with a certain skill? Like is a, is a good restarter in K and N also a good restarter in trucks and then up to Xfinity? I mean, do you, did you see that as a talent scout? Cause I guess what I'm getting at is no matter what you change, aren't there some inherent skills that you can perceive and evaluate from a driver? Okay. Great question. And the answer is yes. So let's use restarts as an example. If a driver is maybe a so-so long run driver at the short track level, and that sort of persists as they move up the ladder, but they are also good on short runs and good on restarts. Well, that is a trait that can carry. And if we consider the implementation of stages uh, and this season, a another competition caution, we know that including the start of the race, there are now four points within a race that a restart will occur. And that benefits a short run driver. And I think that's actually where you see the change is if a driver has strengths and weaknesses, what has changed with the rules within the structure of the race, uh, the, the rules of the car, how does that impact strengths and weaknesses? Does a strength become more relevant or less relevant? And if a driver is struggling on long runs and there are less and less long runs as years progress and how NASCAR changes the formatting of its race, then that weakness is minimized. It sort of doesn't matter anymore. You know, going back to the basketball analogy, teams used to be built around really large centers. That that used to be the thing, that you, you had to have one big seven-footer to build a team around. And now that isn't the case. If you can't shoot from the outside, you're sort of not conducive to your team's efforts because the game has become a game of three-point shots and shots from the perimeter. Um, the big man has no influence. The same thing is going to happen to NASCAR now, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, where things that previously mattered a lot might matter less and vice versa. And so you, you kind of evaluate that way. I think you're going to see that in team evaluation as well. You know, one of the things that I know for a fact that teams were considering heading into the 2021 season was the new car. They wanted to know more about the generation seven car and what traits restarts passing, what have you mattered most and wanted to make their driver decisions based on what was going to matter for the new generation of car. Hmm. Now that's not going to happen. It's been, it's been postponed another year, but that makes a lot of sense to me. If you are going to take into consideration which drivers to sign, you might want to make sure which of their peripheral skills matter in the new way of doing things in NASCAR. So you always have to keep your landscape in uh, in consideration. And I believe that. And and I think again going back to what I was I don't know thinking about the uh just the inherent talent of a certain driver whether you know you made the basketball analogy, you know whether it's 
to me, whether it's 15 feet or whatever, uh, a three point, the exact dimensions of a three point shot are where Steph Curry is so good. You know, if you move that back four feet, something tells me Steph Curry would still be really damn good at it. You know what I mean? If you change the rules, there, there is something inherent that a certain talent or aspect that a driver or athlete can have that I think will still be a strength no matter what the rules. But I like the way you put it. It's just that is it more of a strength? You know, are there more opportunities to, you know, fuel that strength or flex that strength, or are there fewer opportunities? I, I like the way you put that, David. So that, that's smart on you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that that is what forms uh, analysis, right? If I just wanted to be a statistical reference site, I would just hang the numbers on there and say, okay, have at it. But I I like the analysis. I like thinking about the numbers behind the sport. And sometimes you really have to talk through which of these numbers are meaningful in the current iteration of NASCAR, I'm fine doing that. You know, the, the Steph Curry analogy, if, if you back the three-point line up, I think he becomes more valuable because he can hit that shot. And a few players that were previously valuable who can't hit that shot are no longer valuable. So when you make a any kind of change, rule, track, uh, car, it's going to impact the entire industry's ecosystem, economy, all of that. There are ramifications. So it's always this ever-evolving thing. I think the moment that you rest on what you think you know to be true, the moment that that occurs is likely the moment the sport has passed you by. So that's sort of why I begin every season anew. I wake up every day assuming that I know nothing or what I, what I thought I knew doesn't matter anymore. Um, and that's why I continue to study and really become diligent about this brand of analysis because if I don't, I'm just going to become a bad analyst if I'm just relying on things that mattered in the past. And I don't want to do that, And nor, nor should our listeners. They should always be curious and, and kind of discover on their own what truly matters now. Good advice. Do not become obsolete. We uh, we benefit from that, that attitude, David, so we appreciate it. Um, um, let's move on to the next subject. Uh, let's talk about practice, David. We've been talking about NBA for a lot of this podcast so far, so let's talk about practice, Allen Iverson style, because uh, NASCAR announced there will be no more practice, no more qualifying for the rest of the year, and we have not had it since we've come back from the COVID break. So uh, first question we, we can both chime in on here uh, is a simple one. Is practice is no practice a good thing? Uh, I'll take I'll take it here first, David, because I was trying to break it down. Uh, I broke it down. There's the practical aspect, the personal aspect, and the professional aspect when I'm thinking of practice. Okay, right? Uh, personally, say as a race fan growing up, uh, sure, I loved watching practice, but it, it, it's no skin off my back if there is no practice, right? There's no... I miss nothing by having no practice, right? As a fan or if I'm watching at home, sure, I would love to watch it on a Friday. But, you know, when I tune in on Sunday, I'm not thinking I'm missing out by having no practice. So I dismissed it there. I don't need practice in my life if I'm just a race fan. That, that's just me personally. Uh, practically, I think about the race teams. Uh, I do, we have run into some scenarios. I, I think it was Jimmy Johnson, maybe in Martinsville or one of them that said, uh, if we'd only had one lap of practice, we would have figured out what our issue was and it would have totally saved our race. All we needed was one. So from a practical side, do we need three practice sessions? Definitely not. Do we need zero? Is that a little extreme? Probably. Is there any way you could fit in a 15-minute or so practice session that would really benefit these teams who invest millions and millions of dollars and hundreds of hours of manpower 
just to make sure everything is sealed and not leaking. Uh, I, I think that's fair from a practical side. And then uh, finally, David, the, the professional side, one thing I think people can't ignore is the TV aspect, right? I know I work for Fox, or but uh, I'm not speaking for Fox. These decisions are way above my pay grade. So, But just understand how the TV business works, right? You buy the rights to sports so you can have content. You show that content on your air so then you can then sell commercials because people are going to watch that content. And that's how you make money. And the TV, what is it? A business. So if there are fewer things to show on TV, the people paying the bills hint, hint, right? I mean, a lot of TV money coming into the sport. Uh, the TV people may not be so keen on having less content to show. So there is a business aspect to this we, that may factor in the decision-making. So those are my uh, three <laughs> my three ways of looking at the idea of no practice. I don't think the sport has suffered at all having, not having practice. Some teams certainly have, but there are other aspects to look at when thinking about the effects of having no practice, David. What a well-organized, well-reasoned response that was. I think come tax time, you bring like organized folders to your accountant. <laughs> sure. I- I'm, I'm the opposite. I pull receipts out of my pocket with like one note page that says <laughs> gas February or something. <laughs> like that, that's, that's how I feel right now. Um, okay. I, I appreciate your response. I think the, the only thing that I care about because this is the role that I am currently sitting in is the on track product. And I have been watching races, uh, without practice. And honestly, I think the results are mixed. I've seen folks say that the on track product is really good. I've seen folks say that it hasn't been good and, in reality, I don't think it's anything. I think it, it, it just is. Uh, whatever, whatever you choose to believe it to be is the correct answer. So I would say from a team competitive, uh, competitiveness standpoint that no, it's not a good thing to not have practice. It's not terrible by any stretch. It's not something that prevents racing from occurring, but when something happens, and this is just fresh in my memory because it, it just happened, but when something happens like what we saw at Kansas with Ricky Stenhouse, uh, his car had electrical problems. It started a fire yeah. inside the car. That is a problem that could have potentially been sussed out in practice. His race was, uh, for the most part, over before it began. And on top of that... I prefer when teams are competing at their full capacity. Every team utilizes practice differently, but there is an awful lot of A to B trialing done, especially among the big teams. They just want to see if things work. They want to throw stuff on the wall. And I, and I kind of like having those. I, I would refer to them as a brainstorm session, but for these teams, it's brain, it's a brainstorm session. So trial by fire brainstorm session. I think this helps refine their playbooks for the race. And I like when teams have sharp playbooks. So what we've watched for the majority of this season, whether you like it or not, is most teams competing with limited capacity, with a smaller playbook. And to me, that is sort of disappointing. It's led to excuses of bad performances. 
some of those I think are blanket excuses, but in a lot of cases, a lack of practice is a legitimate gripe. As it should be. And we could talk about something. I mean, look, Kyle Bush, right? That he's the story of the year so far because he doesn't have a victory. And he is mentioned and we've heard it that with practice, he feels they would be a lot better. And on the surface, you could see why, right? I mean, Kyle Bush gives so much feedback. If you've ever had the privilege of uh, listening to him on the scanner during a race, I mean, ju- just the, the language and feedback and detail and data, the brain he has on him, it, it's ridiculous, right? How much feedback he can give to his crew chief and how well he knows these cars. Uh, I mean, we hear it from other drivers, but just, I mean, Kyle specifically, it made, they break the corner down in into like 15 parts right i mean you you hear him talk about like the 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 215th part of the corner like how you know to me there's you know one and two right there's corner one and corner two no they break it down far further and they have a different adjustment for every single fraction of the corner. it's crazy but that's what drivers can do and that that during practice that is something that that is information that they can be giving to their crew chief in this case kyle bush to adam stevens uh so so we've heard it from him, so I will choose to believe him. But I, I just think the if they started off, David, you've, we've talked about it on here on the podcast, right? Their lack of speed, right? Who knows if it's lack of practice, but it's certainly lack of speed that is hurting the 18 team. Well, if there's less time for them to work on that, right? If they're already in a hole and there's less time for them to work and get themselves out of the hole, that doesn't mean, you know, doing it during a race. Well, I could see, yeah, the lack of practice is is hurting them. Because they are they are they are far behind already, and there's fewer opportunities for them to play catch up. And I think some of these practice sessions are certainly those opportunities. So from that aspect, on the 18, David, and other teams like it, I absolutely see a lack of practice hurting them. I, I agree. I'm just based on how Kyle Bush's speed has been this year. He's getting faster as a race progresses. Ergo, he is using the race as practice for the final quarter, which probably isn't what he needs to be doing. But I tend to gravitate towards the the playoff battle that maybe should have happened. And I woke up very, very early yesterday morning and watched uh, the Kansas race. I wanted to log restarts and take some additional notes. I took note of how fast Eric Almarola was and Cole Custer again on restarts. There was, there was one restart. He dipped below the apron to pass Chase Elliott and I audibly said, wow, <laughs> that is a fast car. He's got a lot of horsepower, but that, that is a Stuart Haas team that's kind of clicking really well without practice, uh, practice time. And it speaks to that organization's reliance on simulation data. That's what they use to set up their race cars. Good for them, but that's not the case for everyone. And I look at an organization like Roush Fenway Racing. Roush Fenway really utilized the SMT data between practices last year just to understand how far they were off. And a driver that uh, has a car intelligence like Ryan Newman does is able to make a transition. Um, so did Kirchie Scott Graves. And I had similar hopes for the, uh, the Chris Busher, Luke Lambert combo on the 17 team doing something similar, but with no practice, the opportunity for all of that is gone. And the way that that has manifested on the racetrack has been pretty terrible 
for Roush Fenway. They made the playoffs last year with Ryan Newman. Now they're not in the picture. Newman missed races, but Chris Buescher is now not in the picture. And I, I think the the proof is in the pudding here. Newman has the highest crash frequency in the series, which is a total 180 from last year when he crashed just three times in the first 26 races. And it's actually that factoid that helps make sense of the playoff run. And some regression from that was to be expected. I mean, drivers can't be that clean all the time, year in and year out, but this current rate seems a bit exaggerated. And Chris Buescher, too, has an elevated crash rate. And it's possible that he and Luke Lambert, uh, and it should be said driver, crew chief, and team are all new together for 2020. It's possible they haven't had time to get on the same page. They certainly don't look as if they are on the same page. And Chris Busher is doing some things well. He's a positive surplus passer, uh, specifically on the long runs, but his restarting prowess, which we praised last season and we told him about, and he had no idea that that was even nope. occurring. <laughs> it It's just absent this year. And his struggles uh, on the short runs seems like a disconnect that possibly only exists because he's not practicing. Because if something is going well, then you're most likely comfortable. The opposite is also probably true. When things aren't well, you likely aren't comfortable. And Chris Busher is not only struggling to do what he did previously very well, he's also crashing a lot of cars. And Roush Fenway has found itself in a very bad way in the 2020 season. I honestly believe that logic. That the, I mean, just the, the value to the time, whether it be a new relationship and, and the communication and learning those things, uh, there there is a value to that. Even, you know, wh- whether it be Xfinity, Truck, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the Cup rookies and how a lack of practice is affecting them. I, I know talking to the Truck rookies like Raphael Lassard, um, just hearing from him, uh, just the, I mean, every time he goes in someplace new, uh, he's never been there before, right? I mean, it, it's crazy. He never turned a lap until they're competitive. I mean, they are, they are openly saying, I mean, not that they're punting on the first stage, but they have, they're using the first short stage as something of a, hey, don't crash, right? Learn the track and then we'll get as much as we can in stage two and stage three because that's how they have to learn and practice. And, uh, that's gotta be tough. And even with, uh, you know, we were talking about Kyle Bush before. And if you're, if you're a little, if you start a little behind, there's just such a lack of time to dig yourself out of that hole. I can make the same comparison with Brett Moffat in the truck series. I think, you know, a team that had high aspirations and, and just didn't fire off like some of the other, uh, winners this year and slowly making a comeback as you would expect him to be, you know, race winning contention, championship contender, uh, th- that's coming along slowly. And some of that is not having the practice that, uh, were to improve that he's had in recent years. Yeah, that's a good shout on Brett Moffitt. I hadn't even pieced that one together, but you are very close to that subject. So I will, I will certainly take your word for it. He's having a good comeback at the moment. I, I think about, I think about Ricky Stenhouse in that regard. Like last Thursday night's race at Kansas, we talked about it last week. His passing efficiency has been outstanding this season. And that was a track that he nearly won at last year driving for Roush Fenway. Seemingly that was a race that JTG Doherty racing really needed to go well and a complete lack of anything before and there should have been a little bit more oversight before an electrical problem but again that's also why you need practice when when things 
go bad, then you can correct it because I, I do prefer to see a team be its best self, to be its best version of itself on race day. And yeah, I kind of miss that. Uh, just like the kind of the discussion we were having before, when there's a rule change, you know, what, what, what stats can you still lean on and trust? David, when there's no practice, right? I mean, what, what stats can we trust? Do you think not having practice has skewed any stats or, or are telling stories that maybe we shouldn't be, uh, reading into too much? I mean, uh, one thing you've always said I always liked, I mean, even during practice, you never practice racing, right? So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna assume that, that passing or restarts or anything like that are being affected because you don't have practice, because you wouldn't be doing any of that in your practice session anyway. But is there anything we can point to that may be being skewed by lack of practice? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure passing isn't affected. So I, really, I think it, I think it honestly depends on the driver. Okay. To, I mean, maybe, maybe that's something of a cop out, but if we saw Joey Logano pass efficiently on 550 horsepower tracks last year, and I mean rank really high, he ranked fourth among all drivers on that track type. And this year, that is no longer the case. He is so hilariously into the negative that I wrote an article about it this week <laughs> on Motorsports Analytics. But to me, it's clear that he lost what came to be known as just the signature sharpness because he's not comfortable with the car and he's not having this time before a race being comfortable. He spoke to this on one of his most recent availabilities. He said that there are lost puppies on the 550 horsepower track. And that was his excuse. Um, I believe it. If if you aren't comfortable, you're not going to perform well. So if a driver... I, I, I think this to be true. If a driver has a category, part of his driving repertoire where he used to be really good, and I say used to be as in 2019, because that seems like a million years ago, but as he, as he used to be good and now he's not good, that's something that could have seriously been affected. If a driver was always bad and they're still bad, then a lack of practice does not comprise the entirety of the problem. If restarting numbers were bad last year and the driver is still bad, then sorry, the driver's probably not a good restarter. That's, that's just kind of it. I don't think practice is going to make you better or worse. That's a stat you can trust. And the flip side of that is true. If they were good and are still good, that's a stat that you can rely on. Their success might be a little bit inflated because ever, everyone else's struggles. That is possible. But for the most part, they're succeeding in a category that has seen previous success and that becomes believable. But I think where you see specific statistical categories with each individual driver become affected is the comfort level. And I think without that comfort, and I think you achieve a lot of that comfort in practice, if that's gone and they're not comfortable, then yeah, they're probably going to struggle at some of the things they did really well at. Yeah. And thinking about, like I said, the example I gave with the trucks guys, or, or but I'm sure it can go up to the cup guys. I, maybe you look at stage points being sacrificed, right? If you, if you don't have that practice, uh, who knows how many, you know, what you could have done in that practice to put yourself in better advantageous spot to get early stage points because those first stages go by quick and those numbers still count, right? And so that, that's a big hole for some. The lack of qualifying has really hurt that for some teams. Uh, David, I know you've, you've brought that up, uh, multiple times, but uh, having that lack of practice, if you're not comfortable, and you're trying to figure it out in that first stage that that's ultimately at some point going to cost you production and spots on the track and stage points. And uh, who knows what a playoff spot? You never know. 
Oh, for sure. And it, it, this will get, uh, this will get really interesting. I think as we whittle the playoff field down, the best teams will be relatively equal in what they're able to accomplish without practice. But it's that playoff battle. Um, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in, in the lack thereof. I think we all sort of naturally root for the underdog or at least for the story to occur. Someone like a Ryan Newman last year, or maybe it would have been JTG this year or LFR. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you have your favorite, but it seems that the haves are in very good shape. The haves nots, uh, the have nots relied heavily on practice just to get their cars closer to correct, uh, than it previously already was. And they don't have that opportunity. Some of them, most of them are making up for it. Like you said, during the first stage, I've also seen that with some of the better teams and you're right. Like the, this with Kyle Bush and Joey Logano, these might be foibles that are championship separators. We often hear that term. We rolled off the truck. Good. Yeah. You know what I mean? We rolled off the truck fast, that cliche. Well, now it means more than ever. So uh, kudos to those teams that roll off the truck with uh, some speed. David, I have literally, I have zero inside knowledge about this, but I do think come next year, we at least have some hybrid form of practice that we, uh, you know, maybe it's changed a little bit, but I think some sort of practice comes back next year. What do you think? That would be fun. I have absolutely no idea what to anticipate for 2021. <laughs> um, I think one, I hope that there is a season. <laughs> I don't know. Anything can happen at this point. Um, but yeah, I think I would like a return to something resembling normal. Um, you're right. Maybe we don't have to have three practice sessions. Um, but one or two could do a lot of good for a lot of these teams. Just to, to shake the car down because we've seen before some of these, these, these drivers, the teams, they, they need it. I want them to be able to compete at full capacity and the closer that we can get to that, the better. All right. Let's go north to New Hampshire, David, where the only national series racing this weekend up there, uh, no truck, no Xfinity, just one, one race, the cup series on Sunday, 3 p.m., I believe up in New Hampshire, my neck of the woods, uh, New England, lovely New England, where I'm sure people think, David, people think it's, I mean, it is cool up there, obviously in, in the winter, there's snow, but it, it's still 90 plus degrees, I'm sure this summer. So, I mean, and they're not going to get too much of a break when the cup guys, uh, when the sport heads up there, but New Hampshire, beautiful this time of year where they will not have practice. So David, as we do every week, we're going to preview the race. Uh, and we always like to ask, you know, how, what matters at a certain track? So what matters at New Hampshire? How will this race be won? Um, I look back to last year's race. They only go there one time a year now. Uh, seven non-stage cautions last year in the race, David. At one point, Denny led 113 laps straight. And then Harvick took over, I believe it was a pit stop late in the race, and he took it home from there, led, uh, led out from there, and that ultimately won the race. It was Denny versus Kevin. Surprise, surprise. So what matters at New Hampshire, and how does this race won? You're on to something with that. Uh, the broad answer is that everything matters. Some things more than others. Uh, strategy matters in the sense that it always matters, but it's not the only manner in which you can win at New Hampshire, unless things come down to fuel mileage, which is entirely possible at this racetrack. We've seen it before, but for this weekend, it'll feel like a throwback weekend. All the horsepower 
is available and throttle work and braking are necessary. So driving is required and will likely dictate how the race is won. You looked at 2019. I wanted to look at the 2018 race uh, because if we think back to that, that was an interesting one. Five drivers led 20 miles or more, and this is only a 318-mile race. Five drivers led 20 miles or more. None of them won the race. Hmm. Kevin Harvick won after a heady long-run battle with Kyle Busch, and there were still eight restarts across a relatively short race, but it was ultimately decided by a slew of long runs. Hence, everything pretty much matters. <laughs> I think this should be a straightforward NASCAR race, the kind of which we don't really see anymore. All right. Um, well, we always talk about restarts as well in terms of who uh, or who or where, actually, in terms of location, inside lane, outside lane, the preferred groove on a restart. So tell us, what are the trends in New Hampshire? So this is a relatively flat one mile track and conventional wisdom says the shortest way around is the fastest. That would be the inside. But this is NASCAR. There is no conventional wisdom and the outside groove reigns supreme. Uh, more than that, last year's race saw eight clean restarts take place. The leader selected the outside every single time. So teams are aware of the disparity. That is good news. Uh, even though it, it only offered a slight advantage in odds at the front of the field, it was a 63% retention compared to a 50% retention on the front row. But for the field as a whole, retention favors the outside 80% to 35%. And the positions of fourth and fifth are a little bit interesting at this place. Fourth place retained on every restart attempt last year. Fifth place saw no retention whatsoever. Whoa. The dreaded 0% rate. So, Alan, like this Sunday, <laughs> the, the difference between running fourth and fifth is more massive than usual given the advantage it provides on restarts. Wow. You should start a Hall of Fame for position retention of zero because it, it would be a small, elusive club that deserves its own uh, Twitter alert or something. Like, your driver is in the spot like, you know, sirens go off and everything because some of them are out there. And apparently last year, fifth place in New Hampshire was uh, stinks if you end up stuck there, David. So good research. Appreciate that. Uh, as we said, uh, it's one of the 750 horsepower tracks. Uh, I think some people refer to it maybe as the short track package, right? We've seen it at Phoenix, uh, whatever, Bristol, Martinsville. Um, this is this is the big track with that 750 horsepower. So, uh, David, you break it down on Motorsports Analytics. You know, some of the best drivers or fastest drivers, at least, with the 750 horsepower package. Who should we be looking at this weekend? In terms of speed, the fast teams on the 550 horsepower tracks are also the fast teams on the 750 horsepower tracks. Mm. Down the line, Ryan Blaney ranks first. Then it's Chase Elliott, Kevin Harvick, Joey Logano, and Martin Truex. Don't overthink it, folks. Fast teams are fast everywhere for the most part. But in regards to passing, this is where we're going to see some change. Surplus passing value broken down by track type is now available to patrons on motorsportsanalytics.com. And that's what I'm using right now to home in on a few drivers to watch this Sunday. 
I recently wrote about Joey Logano's passing regression that seems to have only happened at the 550 horsepower tracks because he's one of the best right now at passing on the 750 tracks with a positive surplus value over 4%. Also in that 4% bracket are a pair of drivers looking for their very first wins of 2020. One is William Byron. The other is Kyle Busch. Interesting. Chase Elliott, fast race car, but might be in a little trouble this weekend. He has a negative surplus value just outside 5%. Eric Almarola's SPV sits at negative 5.37%. That is not promising, but what is promising Contrary to what we saw on uh, the 750 horsepower tracks last year, is that this season we have seen good passers be rewarded for their single race efforts. The most efficient passer this season at Phoenix was Joey Logano. He won the race. Martin Truex's best passing performance this season came at Martinsville. He won that race. So we've talked in recent weeks about the benefits of smart pit strategy and utilizing that strategy to avoid having to worry about passing. Well, this race, if it breaks like all the other races with this kind of horsepower, it should be in the driver's hands. And I think that's exciting. All right. Well, that leads us to then, you mentioned a lot of names there, so I'll let you go first because every week we pick our contrarian contender. Maybe not someone uh, who's going to go out there and win the race, David. You know, not, no, not one of the favorites, but someone who may, uh, who may, who may threaten or may surprise us or may get that, that, that valuable top 10 for your fantasy, your daily fantasy lineup or whoever you want it to be, David. Who's your contrarian contender for New Hampshire? So contrarian, I'm going to tell you how he can win it and lose it. <laughs> Eric Jones okay. finished Sixth at this track in 2017, and he finished third last year. He needs to win this race, uh, frankly, because his playoff positioning is awful right now. He is a bubble boy, and I will forewarn everyone that he's never started worse than eighth in his life at New Hampshire in the Cup (laughs) Series. He will certainly start 13th or worse this weekend, depending on the qualifying draw. So there is more work than usual ahead of him. That is the bad news. The good news is that he's been an excellent passer this entire season. Really great stuff from him, and that includes the 750 tracks, where he has a plus 1.7% surplus passing value, and he'll need every bit of that this weekend, in addition, maybe, to a race with... Uh, a long run or two. The the restarts have done him in this year, Alan. No driver with a bigger positional loss from the non-preferred groove than Eric Jones. That's probably the driver who least would like to be placed in that fifth place spot. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, so feast or famine for your contrarian contender pick. Uh, I had trouble on this one, David, uh, because I wanted to lean toward, obviously, recent performance and especially some of these flat tracks. I don't know how much correlation is there, but, you know, I throw it out there. The two Poconos in Indianapolis and just lately, Eric Almarola has been awesome. So why, you know, and I don't, maybe he's not getting the credit he deserves in terms of how much we should be talking about him, but he's on a roll. Uh, I think he will do well in, in just being part of the Stuart Haas team and, and just the role that he is on. 
Uh, and also Matt Benedetto, who I wanted to pick because he also had a good run at Pocono in Indianapolis. And when you factor in that Penske affiliation with the 750 horsepower, uh, horsepower package, I think Matty D has a good weekend in uh, New Hampshire as well. So uh, I hate to pick two, but sorry, I'll let you guys make the, be the final decision. Why, why stop it too? Why don't you pick three more? <laughs> That's not why, funny, David. That's not why, funny. why don't you, why don't you just expand? That's odds? not funny. That's not funny. <laughs> Um, no, it's a good, it's a good idea. This, the Stuart Haas thing, um, it works, right? Like they've had success dating back all the way to Tony Stewart at New Hampshire. I mean, this is a team organization that does flat tracks really well, that does New Hampshire really well. Uh, and Stuart Haas has probably benefited from the lack of practice in that there is less competition for them. And the 10 team is uh, certainly a point getter. They have taken advantage of that. They have certainly taken advantage of the qualifying draws. If Eric Almarola gets another <laughs> front row start, oh boy. But, um, but you know what? Kudos to the organization because they did enough work to put themselves in that kind of position and as for Matt Benedetto, I think he needs some horsepower after last weekend's race. I thought his comments were hilarious after crashing out at Kansas. Um, but this, uh, this weekend, it probably will not take 45 minutes just to get going. So I think Matt Benedetto <laughs> his really good restarting prowess, uh, could, could eventually do him very well. We'll see what happens. All right. Those are our contenders. Enjoy the weekend up in New Hampshire. Episode 72 of Positive Regression. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. I've been on there a few times, David, looking up some old stuff that we talked about that's now just coming to the surface with some other uh, uh, free thinkers out there in the NASCAR world. It's been fun to go back and listen to some of those episodes. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. This does help in spreading the word about the podcast Podcast. We do notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at PosregPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. You know we love to answer questions. We did it uh, just on this episode and turned out to a great conversation. David, you're always busy. What are you working on? On MotorsportsAnalytics.com this week, I wrote about Joey Logano, as mentioned, uh, in 2019, he and the 22 team had seemingly no weaknesses in their game, and that is no longer the case. And it's more more than just simple regression. There, There's a lot going wrong with the 22 team, so I dove pretty deep into that, and that is already posted. Also, towards the end of the week, you will see an article featuring regression candidates, both positive and normal, that you might want to check out. Regression candidates for the second half of the 2020 season. Um, a lot of fun there. Motorsportsanalytics.com. Check it out. All right. Good stuff. And uh, I, I admittedly have something of a slow week because uh, there's no truck race. And uh, after a few in a row, uh, we get the week off before going back to Michigan. But keep it on the Fox family. FS1 Race Hub still on every night, Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. So make sure you watch that and uh, just enjoy the weekend of racing. Thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you watch uh, Race Hub and, and we'll see you next week.
Tamira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.